Welcome. This is Michael Wolkoff, and this is episode 105 of Corruption Chronic Compliance. Our episode today is an update on beneficial ownership regulation, on third-party risk management, power and control issues. It's quite a hefty title, but it's a discussion with Ted Data and Bill Hauserman from Bureau Van Dyke, a Moody's analytics company. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. Before we get started, I wanted to ask everyone to subscribe to and give our podcast a five-star rating uh, so that other compliance professionals can find our podcast. Well, I'm really pleased to uh, have uh, Bill Hauserman and Ted Data here from Bureau Van Dyke, um, a Moody's analytics company. Um, We've had a continuing discussion in webinars and writing over the years about third-party risk management, uh, the impact of technologies, and the need for validated and reliable information relating to beneficial ownership and the significance of that issue. Um, So I've always wanted to have them on the podcast, and I'm glad to have them here today. And I wanted to just give you all a little bit of a brief uh, introduction to each. Uh, Bill Hauserman, who's the Senior Director of Compliance Solutions at Bureau Van Dyke, a Moody's analytics company. And Bill joined Bureau Van Dyke in 2016 after 12 years, designing global compliance and ethics programs for SAI Global and Navex Global. Uh, Ted Data is the Director of Governance, Risk, and Compliance Solutions, Bureau Van Dyke. Uh, Ted joined Bureau Van Dyke in 2010. And he has specific expertise in helping organizations streamline their third-party due diligence, onboarding, and risk management processes. He's a regular thought leader, contributor to Europe's leading procurement, supplier management, and governance risk and compliance uh, forums. So it's great to have uh, the, the two of you here. And, and let's set the stage a little bit. And as we've discussed before, you guys, you're probably two of my favorite people to discuss this issue with because you really are on the cutting edge. Um, but, you know, global enforcement has imp- is obviously becoming more coordinated and more efficient in the anti-corruption area. But so has its compliance for third-party risk management. Um, and now we're seeing much better processes, much better procedures. There's still a lot of work to go. But there still is this really difficult issue of beneficial ownership and understanding third-party ownership and power. And I think both of you have really been promoting this idea or, or educating people about this and trying to help people with this. Uh, and if you've urged you know, companies and clients to sort of look at this issue in a more refined way. Uh, and that gets us to the power and control uh, issue. But if you can each take a moment and just sort of see where are we, what are you seeing right now, and where are we, and what are the challenges facing compliance officers uh, uh, you know, currently that you're seeing in the third-party risk area? Ted, you take it. Yeah, I'll kick it off. I mean, I have a lot of empathy, um, Mike, for the role of today's compliance officer. Um, I mean, if you look look at the big picture, a lot of the programs that people have inherited or have established in the last five, ten years in a sort of post-UK bribery act world, um, there's there's a kind of dual thro- uh, dual prong really. You've got um, 
need to potentially um, re-engineer those programs, and we'll talk more to that later, specifically about the data sat within those systems, um, some of that needs needs looking at. But I think generally there's there's this promise of, of technology um, and the prevalence of technology that the business is seeing as a huge opportunity, um, and they're shouting very loud at compliance to become more efficient in terms of onboarding and streamlined processes and things straight through. And, and certainly in the regulated arena, we've seen that transmit to new competitive business models with fintechs offering lightning fast onboarding and, and promoting that front and center uh, in their marketing. And we talk about minutes rather than hours uh, and hours rather than days. Um, but at the other end of the scales, you've got the regulatory environment, which We'll go into again in more detail, but that complexity around ownership and the programs that most of them have got, like I say, were built five, ten years ago and didn't have that at their center. They weren't focused on the beneficial owners of those um, suppliers, the the individuals who control those companies. Um, So they know to meet the regulatory demands of today, they need to do some re-engineering um, and they can't just put the foot down on the accelerator and, 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 and press on. So I know we'll get into those in more detail, but yeah, I do feel um, feel for today's compliance officers. But you know, there is there is um, there is hope, and we'll explore that, of course, as we go on for the discussion. I mean, I, I think Ted summed it up well in that the um, it's interesting that the chief compliance officers have done a really good job over the last five years fighting the internal politics of getting budget and getting report and reporting up to the board versus um, just being part of a, a business line below. And, and so they've, they've established a prominence. And then they've also been able to have a dialogue with regulators. So they've done that part's been really good, but they are completely at the mercy when it comes to due diligence and understanding who actually controls the um, suppliers or distributors and, and, and clients that they have, they've been at the mercy of the master data folks, those who put together the client databases or the distribu- distributor databases. And their job is to make sure, and it's gotten very specific, that the processes of reviewing those third parties is consistent globally attuned and that they can, at the end of the day, prove anything that they've done. But they can't if they don't have the information up front to work with. And that's where we will explore today how it's really more about the beginning of the process has to be reevaluated in most banks for sure, but also most major corporations, and particularly those that are now looking, um, major divisions are looking like banks. So we'll get into that a little bit further, but I think the, the overall job of the chief compliance officer has come a long way in, in accomplishing what they set out to do, but they are now dependent on others doing their job. And they can influence that, but they can't do it. So that's the, uh, some of the, what we'll touch on today. Oh, great. Uh, well, no, that sets the stage, and I think sort of the, the the next logical piece is to talk a little bit about, you know, what are the regulatory trends, particularly in beneficial ownership regulation. I mean, I know this year, you know, we ha- or last year we had FinCEN uh, in the beneficial ownership regulations, but 
Um, you know, global companies, at least what I'm seeing, and I think, Ted, this is sort of, you know, what you're watching over. There's a lot more going on in Europe uh, and in markets outside the United States in terms of um, regulatory expectations. I mean, I feel you you all are, are further along, and it kind of coincides with GDPR and other things. There's like a trend, a heavier regulatory expectation there. But what, what are you seeing in terms of that? Yeah, so I'm going to put my European hat on, uh, Mike. We're still we're still in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Not yet Halloween. God, we're not um, in Brexit yet. Uh, <laughs> you know, wait. You have to. I think what was the hard date that? Uh, that well, uh, it's Halloween. It's 31st of October. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you couldn't script it, but. Um, yeah, I think so. You know, to, to people out there, we, Europe. We have a clear direction of travel because the European. Commission, um, who scans, uh, Horizon scans really for regulation, they initiate directives, okay, at a European Union level. And they are then, um, there's a discretion on the member states to implement those in specific law. So, in terms of money laundering, KYC, we've had a couple of big directives in the last four years. We had the fifth, um, we're in the fifth directive right now. We had the fourth directive in 2015 16, which put beneficial ownership on the map, really, and it baked it into customer due diligence and KYC. So we know what's coming. With the fifth directive, we're right in the middle of it. The transposition of that, the deadline date, is in January 2020. So we get this, we get this long-term planning. Um, we get this need from the European Commission and drive around beneficial ownership. With the fifth, what's specific? Well, they're looking to put the onus on member states like the UK to have registers where the data is stored, where it can be captured at source, where it's transparent and it's verified. And there's also a loop to continually improve it. Um, that is a huge undertaking. Um, and it's very, very conceptual, certainly in things like continuous improvement of the data. So just on the UK, to touch into that in a little bit, um, we had a government consultation out that closed last week on what we do with our register, our open company's house register, how we evolve that to things like verification and the feedback. The idea being that the banks and the entities that register report discrepancies centrally. So you can imagine that we've got four million companies on that register mm. and we've got one company's house. How do we manage that flow of data? And um, just on that piece, we did, um, we participated, I participated last week, the FCA, who are very innovative in this space. They run tech sprints, hackathons by other names. And they ran one last week and my team, Citadel, we tackled um, that problem and created a privacy enabled environment, a proof of concept that will get built out and may get funding, central funding or not to try and address that specific issue. So really interesting. And, you know, the UK has always been lucky in a sense that we have this open register. It is a bit open to abuse because the data isn't verified. But certainly with the FCA, they've been on on, on point really to, to, to sponsor these type of public-private partnerships and, you know, very interesting time for, for us here in the UK and, and, and still in Europe at this point. <laughs> right. Yeah. For right now, for right now. I will say... And, and Bill, I mean, just sort of to bring us back to the U.S. focus, you know, centric, uh, I, I think that the, the sanctions guidance that came out from OPAC 
raise the stakes considerably for my clients, companies, I'm sure for your contacts and clients, because, and you were mentioning this earlier, uh, Bill, is that it, it, it means that we have to know our whole supply chain now. The risk assessment now has to include your whole supply chain. And all of a sudden, when we were focused on third parties and um, you know, distributors redistributing to uh, Iran or, you know, who was there a prohibited government owner in there someplace or prohibited sanctioned person. Now, this has opened up a whole new inquiry in the supply chain. And, uh, and I'm getting a lot of sort of questions about how far do we have to go in the supply chain. And that to me is something that I think is a game changer from the U.S. side, at least. Well, definitely, Mike, in that the um, I think that the U.S. deferred to the EU over the last five years in terms of could some of these regulations actually be a um, implemented, but also then enforced and right. could they monitor those? So and, and a lot of it was due to the fact that there was that intersection of information like the EU brought up the whole concept initially. We didn't invent it of control is not necessarily stock ownership. And right. so now they added people like CEOs, et cetera, who still may not have control as we define it in terms of flipping a voting decision, but they clearly have influence. So I think the, the, the what's been going on in the EU and the UK specifically, because then the UK became a hotbed of reg, regu, regulatory tech, so reg tech. Right. Right. And so that area uh, mushroomed. So a consequence of all that was FinCEN started focusing on things like ownership. Um, OFAC May 2nd says, guys, you haven't gotten it. You, I need to tell you now specifically in 12 pages, this is what you have to do. I still walk into procurement um, business lines and they say to me, they don't really expect us to do that for, right. for our suppliers. And And it's like, Guys, it's right here in black and white. Sure, right. maybe you're not going to get um, brought to the table immediately, but the point is you're on notice. And you tend to get a honeymoon period of maybe a year, but it's definitely in print. So it's all business. They're not just saying they named suppliers, vendors, et cetera, but they also said your business relationships. That's anyone who's exclusive of, of employees, anyone who has a business relationship. So I think that's the, the regulators are syncing up globally in a way they haven't before. The U.S. is simply using the experience of the EU, and then the EU is, with these various directives, um, stepping up in this concept of is it what is ownership and control, and those are two different things. Right, right. And, that, and the way we get to that, I think, uh, Ted, Bill, is when you look at, so we have the regulators moving in one direction. We have, obviously, uh, but there are the, the kleptocrats and the nefarious, you know, people out there who are trying to evade these programs and evade the technology that is coming into play. And there are challenges in that because you already referred to sort of the control and power issue. Um, so, you know, the bad actors out there are getting more sophisticated as well. 
So how do we how do we get at those issues? How does looking at ownership structures the way you guys like to talk about it? Um, how does that help us in sort of catching up to what the, the bad guys are doing out there? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I think that some of the high profile cases um, show that some of the obvious stuff is now is now being it's all old, old fashioned. You know, these some some very obvious use of we had this thing in the UK with Scottish limited partnerships, which were a very old type of company structure. And suddenly loads are registered on the same street. Turned out they were being used. Um, as part of a sort of worldwide money laundering scheme, we had the Russian laundromat, and that was again companies set up here in the UK. 440 of those were UK-based shell companies. But those kind of um, headline-grabbing type schemes, what the what the the real world's happening is that people are more sophisticated in having ownership structures that are 24.5% because they recognise 25% as a threshold. And we've seen post um, some of the SDN active activity with some of the sanctioned individuals divesting that, you know, we've seen people who've put their structure holding down to 48.5% in their holding company. But yet we've analyzed the group structure to say that they've still got 75% influence and power over that group. So, and, and you've got those sort of in and around the edges, the sophistication uh, of that um, in terms of how we can help. You know, there's some really good research we talked to recently, didn't we, around this in trans crimes work. Now just looking right. at the visibility of these these corporate structures, top to bottom, and just kind of getting where okay, where do certain countries appear often? Where are certain countries um, have hot spots? Where looking at a company that just touches that particular jurisdiction is in itself a red flag because you know that jurisdiction is uh, a tax haven or or a particularly uh, opaque region. So you can you can start to look at the data and and it's all about the typology and a, and a pattern and seeing those as themselves as as red flags and I think you know the more that we know that the data that we have expands in Orbis that we now have has 310 million businesses 45 percent more than it did you know in a year ago so there are less places to hide and as and as countries politically and economically become more open because they need to quite frankly, to trade internationally, there is less legitimate places to, to hide. But it's about pushing that down. Um, and like I say, we'll talk to more about this, but getting beyond the ownership to the power and control. What is it? What is the reality of that of that structure? And why is it set well, up and, like it is? And you raised, Ted, that's a great point where you said you guys have looked at a structure, let's say, that's and the SDN or prohibited person puts himself or herself at 48%. But then when you actually analyze the structure, you are able to determine the real control is 75% of that person. And the danger, and I know, Bill, this is sort of your, you know, your big focus, but the danger is I look at that and I could initially just say, you know, on a surface analysis, 48%, okay, we're okay. Let's just monitor this person. But what you're telling me is that the regulator is going to come in and say, wait a minute, you guys, how did you analyze the, this and why did you write off this when we know that the SDN has actually got a 75 percent controlling interest here? So how do how do we dig at that issue? I mean, that's your expertise. That's where you guys are 
are really yep. sort of the leaders right now. Well, it, it's interesting. If we go back to the EU again and to Directive 4, AML Directive 4, and then 5, and then 6 for 2020, we've simply been trying to address their question of what is control? And is control that you look at the CEO or the CFO? Okay, that's that's one element. But if they don't have any shares, they're not actually voting for um, positions and um, things that the company is going to actually do. So we that's where we started in on this concept of 10 years ago, the SDN took 48%. They gave a spouse or family member 52% and everybody was happy because it wasn't over 50, so check. Well, then, right, then reputational harm started to come into the picture. And, um, and then basically within five years ago, you couldn't hide a family relationship like that. It was just impossible because the, date, the, the amount of data that was now available, even with every privacy law in the world, was now connecting people simply because of the random events of their life in their newspaper, their um, talking about a benefit that they went to and an art article shows up and it's got these connections. And if we can find that stuff that is completely random, unstructured, then you're going to be able to say, well, that was familiar. So they had to change what they do. So what happened was they didn't go to 48%. They went to a fraction of a percent and then lined up a bunch of control initiative of control that was over the individuals who had the other shares. So they found leverage, typically financial loans, et cetera, so that a person, non-family, would be essentially indebted to them so they would always vote that way. And then they can control the um, decisions within the money-making legal entities. They control the holding companies, very difficult to even identify their complete control, but that's really not where not that's not where the game's played. The game's played at the operating companies that are generating cash and then funneling that off, taking money in as a an investment, the dirty money, and taking money out as cleaned, and many times with a profit versus the past where to launder money, it cost you money. So I think that's the the the, the thing we're seeing is that the empirical data is showing us that it is it's a person, how they, as Ted said, how do you structure all of the legal entities, shell, shell companies and operating companies around that three quarters of a percent shareholder ownership to essentially be able to make, to flip any decision of a corporation? That's the genius where the financial, the, the masters of financial crime have now gotten to that point. We just happen to always have been looking for the 0.01% and up. And if you weren't, there's no way to see this. They are totally invisible. We're just trying to create a little bit better level playing field by making those visible. And that's the, that's the effort that's going on right now. But, the, but the, 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 the concern that I have is, you know, you're, quote unquote, traditionally looking at ownership figures for various individuals. And that's your, you know, your stock. And you look and you see 1% and you think, okay, 1%. I'm not going to be as focused on this. And what you're saying is you've got to put together the whole picture 
and and explore the relationships within all of the people who may be associated with these this structure to see what kind of uh control issues or relationships may exist. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's what you're saying, right? Two, two dimensions, right? It's two dimensions. One, it's math. So you take all the shareholders and you figure out the guy with three quarters of, a, of 1%, how many decisions can they flip? So you identify those decisions that they can flip, and then you start to accumulate more you, you accumulate leverage against other shareholdings, so the people who own them, and they tend to have some type of of um, leverage, usually financial, to maintain a grip on that, the, those shareholdings. So that's number one. You just identify, though, that's pure math. Now, it can take millions of calculations of all the shareholders to get to that, but we can calculate a shareholder power, which is simply the number of corporate decisions that an individual can flip with their shareholdings. And it's astounding when you get complex corporate groups, how three quarters of a point can have 75% of the shareholder power, meaning they can flip 75% of all decisions. And then they go to hundred percent simply by lining up leverage. So that's number one. But the problem is how do you find that those connections? That's the new frontier. That's where the new technologies are, being utilized and have been in law enforcement for years, but just wasn't affordable. But now it's getting affordable to be able to say, here are the 200 shareholders. Tell me what the relationships are. Now I can mine all this social information. All of us have a uh, make decisions every day about what we digitally present about ourselves. And a lot of these guys are ego driven, which means they tend to want to be out there in the press or on or they tweet or they have um, literally video now can be analyzed. The audio can be analyzed, turned into text and utilized by artificial intelligence, just like a piece of text can be, an article can be. So I think that's the, 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 the key is, is that you, it's changed as to the technology and the information you need. You need to consume vast amounts of unstructured. That's really why this is so important because they're hiding. Got it. No, I think, Mike, I think your concern is is right, because this is a problem that technology needs to help solve, because you can't just do this manually when you've got, if you've got a compliance officer who's pulling through share certificates to try and find more documentation to look at this piecemeal, uh, you know, I can see the the concern when you're already under pressure um, to, to open accounts. So it's a combination, as Bill said, law enforcement have been doing it, getting that awareness that, that, it, that, it's, that it exists, that there's tools to, to do that. But it, because of the complexity involved, it necessitates um, absorption of big data and large volume. And, and you know, luckily, we have Orbis as a start point for our clients to do this and help them then build out. Um, but it certainly, you can think about it filtering through into onboarding and the, and the questions that you ask clients because you can see a questionnaire going out and asking if you've got 50% ownership. It's not, it's not, 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 not enough. You, you need to look holistically. And, and certainly in the higher risk areas, in the higher risk regions, you know, there is no um, carve out in terms of OFAC. We know that managing a program just in terms of educating the business from the compliance perspective, though it, 
you know, building it regionally in that picture and then starting to dig a bit deeper into those third party relationships that, you know, are probably more likely to going to be in those those high risk regions is probably a good sort of starting point for people to do this um, themselves. Well, and I, what I, I mean, we will before we end this, I definitely want to talk about Orbis and how it addresses the, the power and control issue, because you raise um, a a big issue to me and a big problem. And we get a lot of questions about this. And I mean, I know the new hot thing now is, you know, reg tech and artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of that. And in the end, I, I kind of think of it in a simple way, which is that we now have, I mean, even Bill, your listing of all the types of information that's out there about a particular person. Um, what to me artificial intelligence is is just massive, large computer processing capabilities. And to me, what I think you're saying, and both of you are saying, is okay, regulators are they have these expectations. Now there's technology available that will allow us to do this sophisticated type of analysis that you're talking about. Uh, because the information is out there. And now you're saying the technology is there. It's now building the right sort of tool with the technology uh, and how Orbis, you know, does that. But I hear all this reg tech stuff, but to me, that's what it boils down to, isn't it? I agree. I mean, there's the key thing from the OFAC guidance was that word calibration, wasn't it? Calibrating the right. systems, cali- calibrating. And you look at what the FCA, they, they kicked off a um, – they've been working with the Alan Turing Institute for the last six months – they put a piece out last week on on AI, and they did a really nice. You know, there's there's the key, which is really the explainability. This is the key. You have to have some transparency and accountability. And the way they did this was sort of two two streams. One is stakeholder accountability. So who is designing it internally, externally? What's going in? What what factors are you are you driving within the data or within the content to produce the outcome from the AI? You've got to understand that. And the second is context. So you talk about the context for that search, the context that you're doing it in. So, you know, is it, are you looking to automate a decision in the context, in which case the explainability needs to be very high because you could ultimately have a computer says no situation and that's, you know, you don't want that. So what's the outcome? What's the context? Fighting for actual crime? Fine. You know, there's carve outs and sort of data protection around that. So yeah, just this kind of framework, but yeah, right within that is, the, the calibration of whatever you know, reg tech it's just technology for regulatory compliance so it's a right. it's a black it's a platform but how are we calibrating that and you know, with with ai a lot of it is supervised machine learning and that supervised process is where subject matter experts law and law enforcement need to be involved um, to understand what's going on yep well let me um i, I want to sort of uh get to one other issue before, and this is uh, before we sort of talk a little bit about Orbis and and how that works. Um, But one trend, and I wanted to raise with both of you just to see what your reaction is, is um, we are getting more and more inquiries from clients, contacts, uh, who are telling me that they have too much information or too much not really too much valuable information. They're getting too much information uh, and 
it's taking a lot of time to sift through it and find out what's relevant and what's not as they're trying to manage their third parties. And uh, I don't know if that's a product of uh, these technologies or what's going on, but what are you, what's your reaction to that? Because we're finding we're spending time now saying this kind of information is not as relevant. We have to risk rank your time in a sense and allocate your time based upon the risk. So there's certain kinds of information we're looking for. But what has been your experience with that, and what are you hearing from clients uh, and, and your contacts and colleagues in in this area? Yeah, Ted, I'll just um, jump in on the that the statement I have information overload, too much information. That statement today is now I have too much information to consume and understand in the program that I have today. That's the issue. It's the program that I have today. Information is growing astronomically. I mean, and most of it is unstructured, meaning it's a random tweet or an article in a foreign language in some small newspaper in Pakistan. So it's that information was never deemed to be what was used for due diligence because it was just outside uh, any consumption capability. So now the, the, the technology simply flipped that. Not only can you access it, which is one thing, humans can't read all that stuff. So you have to you teach a computer to read it and to interpret and you train that computer. So it's that piece, natural language processing is simply taking any language getting it translated to a baseline language that a computer can understand and then being able to interpret and assess from the point of view, is this positive or negative? And then to actually score relevant information out of a pool, let's say of a hundred million articles, what are the three that are most relevant to me right now? A person can't do that, impossible. So, I mean, think about Google. You get 2 million, 3 million hits. How many do you look at? Maybe 10 if you're lucky. And most analysts don't have time. So, so the machine now can be taught quite accurately to assess that. And it's not, it doesn't invent this. You've got to train it. And I'm telling you, having gone through one of these, it's hard. You have to, you know, the, the, uh, here's an article that says Volkswagen was um, doctoring the admissions. Okay, that's bad, that's negative. Well, here's Volkswagen, a Volkswagen was used in a bank robbery. A computer has to understand the difference. A human mind can understand that pretty easily. Computer, it takes a while to teach it. So millions of instances have to be um, taught to it. But that's where I think, Mike, the problem is, is just consumption. And so you have to use technologies to be able to consume particularly unstructured information, but even the structured Orbis has uh, 310 mil million legal entities. So that's why the world is a different place for the programs that were built five, seven years ago. I mean, Ted, you see this all the time. You know, I agree. I mean, it's certainly, I think the relevancy, you've made the, you've made the point perfectly. The other, the other side of that coin is the organization so the regulated entity, the, the corporate, the consumer, effectively, of that sort of data, they need to think about their relevancy. So, so what's their risk appetite, how they, they evolve their kind of risk rating um, to, to 
to have some understanding and influence over the outcome of that system and screening or whatever process. So an awareness on the buyer side, basically, of the capability um, and how to calibrate and then to distill down to that relevancy. And again, it's about this, about this technology cannot just be a black box. You can't stand up in front of your auditor or regulator and say, well, the outcome came from that system. It's not going to fly. It's just game over. We've seen that. That's basically what, in a nutshell, OFAC said, following the Cobham you know, um, settlement, that was one of the key, key takeaways to that. So you're absolutely right. The relevancy information overload, it's incumbent on providers of technology and data like us to deliver that, to curate. It's all good acquiring new content that we've been doing, but we need to curate as well and give that, give that thought. And at the same time, organizations, consumers, they then need to give that thought themselves to they come to something that's that's consumable and meets their risk appetite the same way. Well, that, and you, you raised with the Cobham decision, the, the quintessential point here, which is that companies, at least from OFAC's perspective, are on the hook for what's your technology? How did you calibrate it? Have you tested it? Do you know that it's reliable? Because you can't go in now and say to OFAC, well, you know, we screened this, but we made a mistake in the way that we did this. Uh, that's exactly what Cobham tried to do, and they didn't get anywhere with that. Uh, and it, if anything, I think nowadays the government is much more aware of what technologies are out there, and uh, and they have an expectation that you're going to do a serious RFP, you're going to do a serious look at the capabilities and what your risks are and what you need to know in today's world. And if you don't document that, uh, it's not going to be a fun meeting that you have when your lawyers are in there trying to defend you. I've been there in saying, well, we, we just didn't have the money for this. That's just not going to be a good answer for, for these days. So anyways, I know I'm preaching to the choir when it comes to that. But uh, listen, both of you, thank you so much. This has been terrific. But before we go, I want to address the big issue, which is Orbis and Compliance Catalyst is the BBD or Bureau Van Dyke solution. And, and really, if you can sort of explain to our listeners, because I know they're going to be interested in how does, this, how does that product and your services and support address some of the issues we've talked about here? And uh, I'd turn it over to you for in terms of, of the best way to describe that. Great. Yeah, we'll split it up. I'll take um, the data side, and Ted can take Compliance Catalyst as the lens into the data. But just simply, the 30 years, over 30 years ago, um, Bureau Van Dyke started this quest to um, imagine a database that had every single legal entity in the world, all private, all public, all connections. And it's the connections that is the key. So while Compliance Catalyst now has 310 million um of these legal entities, it's the connections between them that run into the hundreds of millions. So who owns them? Who manages them? Who are the directors? And it's fascinating when you get that much information and then can put smart technology algorithms against it, and it starts to paint these pictures of, did you know that this one person, there's 62,000 companies <laughs> that they registered and you go look at every one of those companies that's a holding company, and they're all and they're connected to five cartels, um, laundering money. 
And so those are the pictures that are coming out of the raw data. And again, I go back to my first statement. It's about where you start. It's the raw data. It's the, if you have a database of, of uh, clients or suppliers or distributors, the chief compliance officer should expect that the information coming out of those systems is accurate to 99.99%. It has to be, or what OFAC is talking about becomes almost impossible to do. Now, OFAC is not expecting it to be there, but that's our, that's our mission. We want to be 99.99% reliable in terms of a legal entity in a country. Now, the fact that there are 70 million cha- material changes of control and ownership in the 310 um, million is a, uh, a, major fa- a major issue. So this isn't just a database. This is, has to be a living process where raw material is being collected from every country in both English and source and um, local language, and then brought in standardized and, and then um, the biggest pieces keeping it up to date. So that's more or less you normalize and enhance our clients' data sets to some source of truth, and that's where Orbis. And if there's a gap in Orbis, you've got a legal entity that's not in Orbis, then we've got to start an entity resolution process to get it there. Because then our dozens of regional experts in language and uh, data by country can start to monitor those legal entities. So this is a massive um, process. And then now once I have it, that's how you influence then the um, the actual output and efficiency of the due diligence program. And the goal is to try to eliminate as much of the uh, waste, which revolves around false positives. So now let me turn it over to Ted and talk through having, he's gone through these tech sprints. He's seen the evolution of RegTech um, and that's where we're basing most of our gains. Yeah. I mean, so pick up the baton there. I mean, so, you know, in terms of, where, where Orbis then connects into the workflow. And that's really what the second half of what Bureau Van Dyke helped with is all about. So as Bill said, we help to resolve the entities that the client has to improve the quality of the data. That's a fundamental initial jumping off point in the deliverable. Um, we can then um, stream that data through the enterprise system. So if they have workflow tools, you know, big fans institutions will have built platforms but they need data. It's the lifeblood of that system. It's the, it's what, it's the oil that drives the machine. So we can do that. Um, we often do, you know, feeding that information in. It's, it's maintained dynamically. We update and we effectively manage that client data for that ent- entity in the back end. And we just push changes and keep the information current. Um, Beyond that, then we have our own suite of tools that can do that for organizations, maybe not um, who have built those platforms, but a lot of other institutions, a lot of other um, sectors where they're looking for off-the-shelf systems that can be quite quickly configured to spec. And that's the catalyst platform, that's the compliance catalyst. That journey began about 10 years ago. Um, Catalyst is about speeding up workflow. In there, we have rules-based assessments. So in that 10-year journey, we've learned an awful lot about the industries that we've helped, the KYC market, AML, trade compliance, ABC. And we now have a library of models that we can help deploy for the client. They're not black box models. We are transparent. You can see what's in there, what levers are being pushed. But it's about very quickly then 
distilling a decision. So, you know, surfacing a red flag in a traffic light environment to the first line of business. We talked at the start, didn't we, about how, you know, compliance is now about relying on the business to help. So these tools can help give initial decision, resolve, escalate to the right point. Um, then beyond that, you know, complete an end-to-end process with onboarding, uh, adding documentation, monitoring that. So once you've completed the due diligence, then setting some appropriate controls, and then in and around that, you've got the, ex- the expected type of um, management information that you would need today to have that process. So workload reporting, risk assessment reporting. So compliance catalyst is that is that end-to-end version. Um, and in terms of development, we have invested hugely in the new release that we have currently in beta and hitting the market later this year. And we're very excited about that product and the speed and, and scale that we're going to deliver, deliver with that solution. Okay. Thank you, uh, Bill. Thank you, Ted. Um, if people want to reach um, BVD, uh, the best way to reach to get more information is uh, to contact them at Americas. Uh, at bvdinfo.com. That's Americas at bvdinfo.com. If you want to get more information about their services, please reach out to them. And again, Ted and Bill, thank you so much. Uh, Hope to continue this discussion uh, further on down the road and uh, look forward to catching up again. Thanks again. Likewise. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Thanks for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can always contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals. Yeah.